You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from Discipleship Director Johnny Bell. Three services, tough on the voice, you know. Um, let's have some fun today, huh? Should we, should we, can we? Can we have some fun? Okay, do you know the story of Yahweh and Abram? Let's get into it. The word of the Lord. Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. This is Genesis 15. And God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. So far, so good. He said to Abram, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to him, bring me a female cow, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Right then, so what's going on here? Like an odd passage to my modern 21st century ears. Carcasses, animals, cut in half, but not the birds. What's going on? I remember really reading the Bible for the first time when I was in probably middle school. I grew up in the church. I knew Bible stories, but it was when I was probably in middle school, high school, that I started to read it for myself. But I read it as if as if the words were like transfused with cosmic power and it was like this magic, almost like a spell book, like you read it to make life better. I don't know if you ever read the Bible that way. It's not a great way to read it. For me, this often was a rinse repeat cycle of uh, the girl I was interested in or dating broke up with me. So now I need to read Leviticus for a few chapters to like try and like get some cosmic goodwill or something. Or maybe when you read the Bible, they're so infused with truth, like something will happen or I'll find some profound thing that's the key to unlock. That's how I read the Bible. Not a great way to read the Bible. Um, and it meant that I also didn't critique the Bible very much. We also asked that the Bible critique us, but we're also called to, you know, investigate the text with our minds and our intellect. I didn't do that so much. It wasn't until I got older, I met some people a little bit smarter than me, and they would like ask questions of the text. And they would see passages and go, you don't think this is strange? And then I would go, yeah, that is a little strange <laughs> for the first time started to read the Bible with fresh eyes, and maybe this is how you read the Bible, and I would see passages and I would go, nope, don't like that, and then you go to the next page. I once had a, a student in youth group come up to me with her Bible, and she had just crossed a part of it out. Like, this part, terrible. And I'm like, yeah, but let's not cross it out, <laughs> you know? Or there's parts of the Bible that you go, you just read it and you go, what on earth is going on here? What I've learned and what I've found is that the Bible needs to be investigated, it needs to be explored, it needs to be studied, its mysteries need to be unraveled. Well, I found that when we start to do that and the Bible starts to unfold its layers and the mysteries are revealed, passages that seemed tricky or downright unhelpful start to bloom with a transcendent beauty and profound truth. So here we are in Genesis 15, with Abram, who later has a name change, becomes Abraham. But if you know the story of Abraham, right now he's Abram. 
He's here with Yahweh, and there's a ceremony involving five animals and some vultures circling overhead, and it's very odd. But let's find the beauty together. This story in Genesis 15 is actually the central story of three stories of God establishing a relationship with this guy named Abram. All three of these stories tie together to form one narrative of God meeting Abram. If you've ever seen the classic rom-com When Harry Met Sally, like this is the picture. Have you ever seen that movie? Anybody seen that movie? It's kind of old nowadays. Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal. If you haven't seen it, I'm not recommending it. You should discern in your own heart whether that's an appropriate movie for you to watch as a Christian. Um, but as a movie, When Harry Met Sally, it sounds like, so, oh, my ears. My ears just popped. Sorry. Um, when Harry Met Sally is this, you, he, you see the title and you think, so is this like a single scene movie? It's like, a, it's like a contained episode of just them meeting for one time. But actually, it's much more than that. If you watch When Harry Met Sally, it's like the five times Harry and Sally meet over multiple years, all working to establish that by the end of the movie, you're like, I've got it. I understand their relationship. Same if you asked me with my wife. Uh, my wife's name is Michaela. We have three kids. Michaela goes by Mickey. If you asked us, how did you guys get together? I'd tell you three stories to tell you that one story. I'll tell you the time we met in a university cafeteria on a fall day in Oklahoma. I'll tell you about getting down on one knee and proposing on a summer night. I'll tell you about the Colorado mountainside where we got together in front of our family and friends and exchanged vows and rings. And maybe those three stories would tell you the one story of Johnny and Mickey. So we get three stories, Genesis 12, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, that are three times when Yahweh meets Abram. This is the story of when Yahweh met Abram. Genesis 12 is the first. Relationship begins in Genesis 12. Love is in the air. The, the feelings are stirring. Something is happening. We don't know what it is yet. But God has come out of nowhere and he meets with Abram. And he says these profound words to him that we'll dig into later. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then we move on, Genesis 15. They meet again. We get the middle of the story, which we just read a portion at the beginning, and we'll come back to. This is like the wedding between Abram and Yahweh. Vows are exchanged. The relationship is formalized. Then Genesis 17, we kind of get a renewal of the vows. Some years have passed, some things have happened, uh, some rocky years in between, and they reaffirm their promises to each other, and they reestablish their culture right before the family expands and Abram starts having kids. Abram becomes Abraham at that point, and the story of Abram and Yahweh and how they met has been told. This moment in the biblical narrative, this moment that is three moments, 12, 15, and 17 of the book of Genesis, they tell this one story that is a massive moment for the biblical narrative and the story of humankind. To understand it, we have to understand the full story. So when I think of stories, I think of narratives, I think of how do you tell a story, I think of screenplays. So I picture this like a screenplay. Picture it like this. You get the opening credits, you get the opening title, the movie starts, 
and it's Abram. He's an old man. He's holding a large stick, a branch, and he's running back and forth and he's yelling and screaming at the air as he shakes his branch about at vultures that are circling overhead. On the ground, we cut to this interesting scene of parts of animals not fully all together in a line. And we have Abram, a large vulture swooping down. He jumps in the air and swings his stick and the movie freeze frames right there. And a narrator says, hi, I'm Abram. You're probably wondering how I got here. It all started with my great, 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 20 greats, 20 generations, grandfather, Adam. This is how I picture the movie playing because here you have this pivotal moment But to really understand it, we need to do a rewind and figure out how Abram got to where he is. And you see, we need to understand the book of Genesis for this. So the book of Genesis is actually, it's the first book of the Bible, but it is split into two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 is the beginning part, and then there is a change in Genesis chapter 12, and 12 through 50 tells the second part. We are right here in 12, 15, 17, the beginning of part 2. So what was part 1? The first section of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, sets up the problem. Another way to view this through the lens of movies is Genesis 1 through 11 is like the opening crawl in any Star Wars movie. It's the stuff you need to know before you can understand what our main guys and gals are doing. It's the backstory to the main character. Genesis 1 through 11 is a whirlwind tour from the beginning with the creation of all things and the first people, Adam and Eve. And they live within the original design where all things are good and harmonious and creative and peaceful and joyful. Creation is specifically marked by healthy relationships and the union of all things. A concept that in biblical terms, the biblical writers refer to refer to as shalom. And when Adam and Eve rebel against God in Genesis chapter 3, shalom gets broken. At that point on in Genesis, we get the escalation of the consequences of shalom being broken. Again, in biblical language, this is called the curse. It's as if the fall of creation, all, all of creation has become cursed, not by God, But it's like this curse is brokenness, like a virus that has infiltrated all of the universe. You see that it curses the land. Mankind's relationship with the earth becomes broken and fractured. You see that mankind's relationship with itself becomes broken. Parents turn on their children. Brothers murder brothers. Human relationships are shattered. Violence and death are introduced. The relationship between people and their creator is broken as people turn away from God generation after generation in escalating circumstances. They turn away from the source of all goodness. And it all culminates in chapter 11 of Genesis. 20 generations go by in the blink of an eye in this whirlwind. We lead to the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is this story where the problem has gotten so bad that the people of earth are seeking to officially establish their kingdom of violence and disharmony. They've actually managed, after all these generations, to find something to unite over. What are they unified under? The tower that they are building and what it, it stands for an idea. The idea of their tower, 
tower is to metaphorically kill God. Nietzsche was only 4,000 years too late with his assertion that God is dead. Happened way back in Genesis chapter 11 when they invented the brick. That was the technological innovation that was necessary for mankind to say, no longer need God, we have bricks. Led to the, this was a technological like breakthrough that led to the building of new structures. And they go, wow, we could build a tower and it would be strong. And we could build a really tall tower and it would reach the heavens. And if we can live in the heavens, who is God to us? And so when they build this tower, unified, the only thing that seems to get human beings to agree is we don't need God. We can handle things ourselves. Let's establish forever that there is only one kingdom now, the kingdom of the curse, the kingdom of man. God in his mercy, and it is mercy, steps in and scatters the people in Genesis 11, which means it ends in a dramatic low point for mankind where everything is falling apart. There is no hope. The curse has infiltrated every part of human life, and what we need is a solution. You can see where George Lucas got it from when he wrote Star Wars. You open with the empire of darkness rules the galaxy. That's Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12, a new hope enters the story. Forgive me for how cheesy that is, but I hope that you remember it. Genesis 12 marks the moment where God enacts the plan to rescue his children, all of mankind. And as we venture into the second half of Genesis, God starts to bring about the solution. God comes to Abram in their first ever meeting, remember in Genesis 12, and he says this, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember, this exchange happens in the biblical narrative immediately following the Tower of Babel. One of the great parts of the Tower of Babel is the quote that the humans have where they say, we will make a name for ourselves. So suddenly in this conversation, one chapter later with Yahweh and Abram, God is specifically making a point to undo the curse and redeem and heal what has been broken. Where the people once sought to make a name for themselves, God now says he will make Abram's name great. What was wrong before will be made right now. Where they have lived under a curse that afflicted all of mankind, God says the most radical words. He says to Abram, you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the world will be blessed. How do you undo a curse? With a blessing. This is God's plan. Mankind has rebelled, rejected God, broken shalom, entered into a curse, enacted violence and evil upon each other, and yet God does not choose to reject us. He does not choose to wipe us out. He does not choose to abandon us. He says, okay, let's fix it together. Which then brings us back to Genesis 15. Because after God calls Abram in Genesis 12, promises to bless the entire world through his family, Abram obeys and he believes and he picks up his stuff and he follows Yahweh, changes his whole life, flips it upside down. But like any good fledgling relationship, 
you've got to do a DTR. If you grew up in the church, you know, you've got to define the relationship. Make it official. This is what unfolds in this confusing, beautiful, wild, radical, thoughtful, loving moment in human history of Genesis 15. So bear with me as we read it. It's a little bit long, but it's going to be worth it. So Genesis 15, verse 1 says this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a female cow, a female goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will, not punish, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Lots to unpack. But first, a question. Have you ever sold a car on Craigslist? Yeah, me too, me too. I've sold a car on Craigslist in this newcomer's parking lot right here. I had a guy named Ron hit me up to come and meet me in that parking lot to inquire about my 1999 Jeep Cherokee Sport with the 4.5-inch lift, the all-terrain tires, the bushwhacker flares, the KC roof lights, the roof rack, the hood louvers. Oh, it was a thing of beauty, and it had to go. And Ron shows up with his friend, and they pull up their car in the parking lot, and I'm standing there, and they look at the car, and then they say, can we test drive it? And I say, sure. So I hand him the keys, and Ron and his friend get in the car, and they drive off the lot to go around the block a couple times, and hopefully come back. Now, I'm fairly confident they are coming back, because Ron's car is right here. 
Like he's got to come back and get his car. So I think I got him, you know, trapped. He's coming back. Got assurances. And he does come back. Ron, ooh, hello. I don't know what just happened. Ron is like, I disagree. No. <laughs> you sold me a lemon. Um, <laughs> it was a great car. Um, where was I? He comes back. He buys the car. I sell the car. It's great. But what if he didn't come back? Like what if Ron had not come back? What if 10 minutes went by, 30 minutes went by, an hour goes by, and I'm standing there in a parking lot going, huh, I think Ron's nicked my car. What do I do at that point? I call the police. And I tell them, I describe the car, I tell them the license plate, I can even show paperwork that proves that it is in fact my car, even though he has the car and the keys that I gave him, uh, but it's still my car. And they can spread out to their network of highly trained professionals, and they can use security cameras and traffic lights and all kinds of things, and it's actually really likely that if that happened, they'd find Ron. They'd find my car, they'd return it to me, and then I actually have the option of, do I want to press charges against Ron for grand theft auto against me? Any of us could do this if we were put in that situation. Why? Why are we able to do this? Because you and I have been born into a place in human history and into a society where there is a pre-existing structure that we all understand for how business works. You agree to terms, you each provide what you've promised in the terms, and if you don't fulfill your obligations, there are legal consequences. This is true for cars, houses, a pack of gum, a burger at In-N-Out, a plane ticket. It's why we get receipts, it's why we sign for stuff, it's why you don't delete the confirmation email until the package arrives, it's why you have lawyers present anytime something is a significant amount of money, or there's a big contract, it's complicated, because we want assurances that each party in the deal will uphold their end of the bargain. And we want accountability if they don't. So what would you do if you lived 4,000 years ago? How would you make a deal? What would you do if the other party didn't uphold their end of the bargain? Who would you call? What would you do? You would do what Abram and Yahweh do in Genesis 15. God makes promises, Abram believes him and still asks the question of God, how can I know? Show me the receipts. And God tells him, go get five animals. And then notice, God gives no further instruction and Abram asks no further questions and proceeds to participate in a ceremony that he obviously knows how to do already. You see, this is an ancient Middle Eastern form of drawing up a contract. It is not God's idea for dramatic effect and ritual slaughter of animals. This is a human construct for how to strike a deal in a culture pre-legal system, pre-justice system, pre-governing bodies, and pre-trade regulations. Abram says, how do I know you'll be true to your word? And God says, let's make a deal how you would with any other person in this point in human history. What we see as bizarre, Abram sees as completely normal. To understand this in modern dressing, if this was a movie, opening credits, title card, opening shot, Abram is an old man. 
And he walks into a conference room with a big conference table and some bad art on the walls. And he sits down in a chair and he has a stack of papers put in front of him. He's given a pen by a bunch of men in suits. And then they point out to him, yeah, initial right there. Yeah, another one right there. Yep, by the tabs. Yep, right by the tabs. We made it easy. Yep, and then your name at the bottom there. Wonderful. And then imagine Abram looks at the camera, it freeze frames, and then he says, hi, I'm Abram. You're probably wondering how we ended up here. And we would all go, no, I don't actually. I'm not wondering anything because this is the most boring standard thing I've ever seen. There is no drama here. It is just a business transaction of some sort. Like, give me more. This is how you would read it if you were the original audience. The term for what this is, this this agreement, this signing of papers in ancient terms is a covenant. You may have heard of this before if you've been around church ever, if you've been to a wedding, there was a Christian wedding, they probably talk about covenants. That's why in verse 18 it says, on that day Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. If you don't know what a covenant is, it is just a deal that binds two parties together in a mutually beneficial arrangement. The word covenant literally finds its roots in the word that translate to fetter or to bind together or to tie together. And then even this phrase, make a covenant that we have in our English, actually is better translated as cut a covenant. The word make there is actually the word cut. You don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. It's where we get phrases like you cut a deal with somebody, comes from this part of human history. And why is it called cutting a covenant? Because in order to seal the agreement you're making, you would take animals and they would be cut. This is like signing the paperwork. It's just the ancient form of accountability and assurances. You take the animals, you cut them in half, you lay them on opposite sides, forming an aisle with space in between them. And then the two parties stand together at one end and walk in between the animals, saying together out loud, let what has happened to these animals happen to me if I do not uphold my end of this covenant. That's what's happening here. It's like a very emo wedding ceremony, like dark, like Megan Fox would be into it. But right here, this stuff is wild, not for the reasons we see on the surface. We see animals cut in half and we see smoking fire pots going through the middle and we see deep and terrible slumbers falling on people and we go, this part's weird. Abram and his original audience would have been like, no, this part is not weird. This is the normal part. This is the signing of paperwork. The part that we think is normal, where like God like talks to Abram, the original audience would have been like, he does what? Like God of the universe talks to a man as if they're partners and equals. That's the part that's radical in human history. And it's the part that we often miss. We're aware of this idea of a personal relationship with God, but to Abram, this would have been a foreign idea. At that time, they usually believed in a plurality of gods. There was a God for the sea and a God for rain and a God for harvest and a God for childbirth. There was a God for everything. And you would give offerings to those gods and you never knew where you stood. You lived in this impersonal relationship where you existed at their mercy, usually paid for that mercy through sacrifices and loyalty. You lived in a mysterious ambiguity with very impersonal relationship with a being that is very, very far away. You never knew where you stood with the gods at this time in history. 
Yet here, the God of the entire universe comes to Abram and he speaks to Abram and he explains himself to Abram and then he is willing to condescend to a place where he lets Abram, a man, hold him, a God, accountable for his behavior. It's like the Magna Carta for God. It's like this, it is, God will be held accountable to the same standard of his people. And here's where it gets even more radical. Because God isn't just introducing himself and establishing a relationship. He makes a partnership. Even in modern Christian thought, we get excited about like, oh, God's a father and we're his children. Or we go, God's a king and we're his people. Or maybe even go, God's a friend. But God goes, no, no, no. What if we're like business partners working together, each bringing our goodness to form a common goal? What if we achieved something together? This is what God sets up with Abram in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. This is when Harry, Yahweh, meets Sally, Abram. If you look at all three of these passages, we haven't really looked at Genesis 17, but trust me, it's good. You get the full outlay of the covenant agreement that they make. And we get this, God gives as part of the covenant land and offspring. Abram gives a commitment to follow Yahweh and teach each generation to follow his ways. And the common goal that they are working towards is the entire world is blessed through Abram's family. What we need to get here is Abram's side of the agreement is very simple. It's not the complex side of the agreement. You see, God says, let's work towards a common goal. And that common goal will be goodness and life and health and, and peace and joy. Um, so if your part of this is going to be, don't actively undo that work. Right? Like God says, let's make this thing about life. So maybe like don't kill anyone. Or like if, let's make this thing about peace. Like maybe don't actively start war. Like the, the human side of the agreement is not to actively undo the thing we're trying to achieve. You get like if it was, hey, if it was God saying, let's plant a garden together, our role is don't rip up the plants that we're putting in the soil. Here's where it gets beautiful though. We've set it all up, but when you dig in, we find some radical beauty hidden even deeper in the text. And we find it in three ways. God, firstly, fulfills Abram's side of the deal and always intended to. Abram is a, rep, is a representative of mankind in this story. He represents you and me. He is like the person representing the human side of the covenant. And he is cast in a role that he is unable to fulfill. How on earth is Abram's family supposed to bless the entire world? If you look, the entire rest of 12 through 50 of the book of Genesis is the story of Abram's family being the most dysfunctional, scandalous, generationally broken family you have ever met. The interrelational dynamics of Abram's family are so twisted, it's almost laughable if it were not so tragic. In fact, the immediate chapter after this covenant is Abram and his wife Sarai actively working against God, making their own plan and, and disobeying him and immediately putting forth covenant unfaithfulness. By all means, Genesis 15 establishes the covenant. By all means, by Genesis 16, the covenant's been broken. The deal should be off and it should be over. But God has other ideas. And so God casts himself 
through Jesus as the representative of mankind who can fulfill the role. Who is the human being, the person who can walk blamelessly and faithfully in following Yahweh? Jesus. Who is able to teach the generations how to follow Yahweh? Jesus. In other words, who is perfectly able to fulfill mankind's side of the deal? Jesus. God himself puts on flesh, steps down into history as a descendant of Abram and fulfills the requirements and in doing so reveals himself to be the blessing to undo the curse. God says, I love you so much. I'll be the one to come in and do what you cannot do. I will be the blessing that was promised. God actually hints at this from the very beginning in Genesis 3, he hints at it. And then there's a beautiful hint at it in the grammar that God uses when he speaks to Abram. I love in scripture, there's this beautiful phrase that says, scripture is shallow enough that even the, a child can read it and understand it and find beauty in it. But it is deep enough that the greatest theologians and intellectual thinkers will never reach the bottom. So let's go a little deep this morning. Bear with me, we're gonna get nerdy. In Genesis 12, we get when God says to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But it's an interesting verb that's used there. This is a medio-passive use of the verb to bless. Bear with me. So this type of verb is neither passive, which would mean to be blessed, which is entirely external, or reflexive, which would be Abram's family blessing themselves, but it is medio-passive in that the blessing comes from within Abram's family to Abram's family, but it is not Abram's family's doing the blessing. In the same way you might use a phrase such as this fabric washes easily. That's an example of a medio-passive verb. This fabric washes easily. It sounds like the fabric is doing the washing, but actually it's the fabric that's getting washed, but the structure in the sentence puts it as the active agent. On the surface, of our translations in English, we get, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Another way to understand the meaning would be to say, in you all the families of the earth shall find for themselves a blessing. The blessing to be found is the person of Jesus, hidden within flesh and blood, dying on a cross. Secondly, we find beauty in the smoking fire pot processing through the animals. While this picture may not seem very appealing on the surface, it's actually, it's actually infused with incredible depth when we look closely. So we referenced earlier, the custom in a covenant is for both parties to walk through the animals, processing together, both saying, let what's happened to these animals happen to us if we break our side of the agreement. But what we find in verse 17 God embodies himself in a smoking fire pot that represents his presence. God, in verse 17, is the only one to walk through the animals down the aisle. Where is Abram when God is walking down the aisle? He is asleep. From the very beginning, God sets up, these are the consequences for breaking the deal, and then he's the only one that walks through from the very beginning of God's agreement with Abram and therefore with us, God knows we are not gonna be faithful. He knows we're gonna fail. And so while Abram is asleep, dead in his trespasses, God passes through the animals alone. And so God says, not only will I fulfill your side of the agreement, 
but I'll also be the one who faces the consequences should one of us fail. God partners with mankind, fulfills all parts of the desired outcome, and then according to the terms of the agreement, someone needs to face the consequences of breaking their word. And through Jesus, God says to us, I'll do that part too. That's why it's so stunning and necessary that Jesus came fully as a man, God clothed fully in humanity so that he could fulfill humanity's side of the deal, be the fulfillment of the promise and be the one on behalf of mankind who is willing to die. And finally, to close, there's a third part of this story that for me reveals the beauty of God. God does this really interesting thing right before he passes through the animals, right before in verse 13, he tells Abram the entire future of his family for generations and generations. He tells him the story of his children to becoming uh, exiles in Egypt and the persecution they're going to receive. And then he tells about the exodus and the blessings they're gonna take when they leave. And he tells them about the, the wilderness and he tells about conquering the promised land through Joshua. He unravels like hundreds of years of history before the covenant deal. Says this in verse 13, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated there. He goes on and tells the whole thing. Why is this significant? This whole scene has played out like a wedding ceremony. The bonding of two identities, a procession down an aisle, an exchanging of vows and promises, a commitment to faithfulness, and you see, when we get married as human beings, what do we do? We make vows. Think of the classic vows. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Now, I love weddings. But the hard part about the human heart is that it is fickle. And we make these promises with an unawareness of what is on the other side of them and what is going to happen in the future. There's a beauty to that, making pledges into the unknown. It's part of why wedding ceremonies are stunning. But we often tragically find ourselves unprepared for the reality on the other side of those promises. But God does not make pledges into the unknown. He makes promises with full knowledge of the future. He knows Abram's unfaithfulness. He knows the treachery of his grandson Jacob. He knows the villainy of Jacob's sons. He knows how bad it will get. And he makes the covenant anyway. And he makes the promises anyway. And he walks down the aisle anyway. And he is aware, painfully aware and rises with a love to match it. This is true for Abram, and as you have been folded into his story, it is true for God's covenant with you. He knows you and he knows your future. From the first moment he met you, he has looked at your whole life and your family and the generations that follow that you don't even have a concept for yet the children that are not yet born and the grandchildren. And he has seen your family and he has said and made these promises to you that when he says he will cherish you in sickness and in health, he knows just how unhealthy it will get. 
And when he says he will love you for richer or for poorer, he knows how desperately poor it will get. And when he says he is committed to you for better or worse, he has seen the very, very worst. He does not shy away from you or your pain or your brokenness or your struggles or your suffering. Just like he was with Abraham, he is with you, that he is with you in it always, generation after generation. He is faithful to be with you. He is faithful to redeem you and to love you and to restore the shalom that the curse has taken from you. This is the story of Abram's family that goes down to you and for generations that we do not even know of yet. This is the story of the family of God set up when Yahweh met Abram. Will you stand with me? Here's the blessing and the prayer that I want to pray over you. Maybe close your eyes if you want to. Maybe hold your hands out if that feel comfortable. No pressure. But I just want to pray and declare this over you. This is the covenant promises of God that no matter how bad it gets, he is with you. No matter how far you run, he is with you. No matter how dark it gets, he is with you. No matter how badly you mess up, he is with you. No matter how hopeless it seems, he is with you. Nothing will surprise him. Nothing will catch him off guard. Nothing will change his mind. Your father has made it his mission since the days of Abram and before that he will go to any length at any cost to himself to save you. So Heavenly Father, will your blessing, your covenantal blessing be known in this room. May your presence fill us up to overflow that we would know, God, your favor is toward us. The curse does not reign over us. You are not distant. You have not rejected us. You are not surprised by our brokenness, but you are drawn to us through the grave and beyond. So Jesus, we just receive your blessing. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.